this uh, this week we are looking at the prophets or the these figures within the story of Israel whose job was to to help us get what's going on and, and at this moment in time there really is something to try and work out something to, to really try and get because Israel the northern tribe has been uh, the northern half of the tribes of Israel has been destroyed completely wiped out uh, and Judah is staring down the barrel of a Babylonian invasion the facts are known, and in that area of the world, the tabloids are running. Local God Yahweh can't protect his people from Assyrian menace. Shame, shame. Yahweh cowers as Marduk's Babylon advances. And this is the narrative on the streets. Saviour of the world. Oh, oh, you made a covenant to, to, to save the whole world, did you? <laughs> Your people are about to get wiped out. And you can imagine what God himself hears from his throne in heaven. Uh, what, what, are the, what, are, what spin are the spiritual beings in the heavenly court putting on this? The other, the other gods, the, the dark spiritual powers, as they talk celestial politics. And, and look, in this world, I'm not just trying to sort of uh, storyize something that's actually quite, quite sort of, you know, bland and prosaic. No, 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 this, this stuff matters. Bragging rights aren't a recent invention. They're not a thing for just sort of modern people and sports. Uh, in the ancient Near East, everything was about honour. It was about glory. In the modern West, uh, people don't really care uh, if they get caught doing something shameful. Like, people go on reality TV, right? <laughs> you know, like, they, like they, they, people, people are willing to give up their dignity for money. Now, in the ancient world, it worked the other way around. People are willing to give up their money to gain dignity, to gain honour. You would spend effort and money to earn honour. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a footpath in Corinth. Um, I don't have, sorry, I don't have a picture of it. Um, there's a, that a bloke named Erastus. He put some cash in to have it built, uh, partly for the honour that would come with it, and we've still got it. We've got, the, we've got this, this bit where you can see this uh, beautiful footpath would have been, and we've got the couple of slabs I've got here. Erastus gave it at this time, and this was how much it cost, and we want to honour him for the blessing that he did to our city of putting in this great footpath for us. Because that's what you do. If you've got the cash to do it, that's the name of the game. And the fight for honour isn't just among people, it's among the gods of the nations around Israel. The reputation of Yahweh amongst the other gods, that fight is fierce. And at the moment, Yahweh's been handed the wooden spoon. After this last round of defeat, Yahweh's honour is very, very much in question. He's at the bottom of the ladder. Until we get to a different article... Jeremiah's opinion piece. Uh, he's reporting on the same facts, but he writes a different headline. He's got a different angle on the story. And he's arguing that God hasn't failed at all. Well, what's happened, he says, is that to Israel, is not because they follow this Yahweh God and their own God is too weak to help them. It's actually because they haven't followed their Yahweh God and they've worshipped other gods. And now he doesn't want to help them. Just think of that in the context of our big picture story where this God is so determined to bring life and blessing. And chapter 3, Jeremiah talks about it uh, about as salaciously as the worst British tabloid. Uh, Jeremiah 3.6. Um, oh, sorry, I don't even have it there. <laughs> this is so... 
Uh, this is our first introduction to, to, to a figure that was common around this time, the prophets, who were, were very specific kind of, they had a very specific kind of role. And I, and I just want to introduce you to, um, I just want to introduce you to the, the, the role that the prophets played in the, this world, in the world of the people of Israel. Now, I should first probably tell you what a prophet is. In fact, actually, audience participation, um, I want you to tell the person next to you, well, as soon as I say the word prophet, uh, what's the first two things that you think of? Anyone, wanna, anyone willing to describe what do you think of when you hear a prophet? Any answers? Speak someone who speaks for God. Fantastic. Yep. Someone who affirms God's word. Yep. Yep. So, so speaks for God, but also affirms what God's already said. Yep. Up the back. Elijah, yeah, you think of specific prophets. Yep, exactly. So there's, 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 there's specific people. This is not, a, not an empty category. We know that they're actual people who did it. And, um, and, and I've got these two little sort of like analogies, two little sort of like illustrations that I think of that help me understand what a prophet's job is. Because those things are true. I'm going to give you a slight, some slightly weirder ones. I think that they are, first of all, God's sports commentators. Okay, now I'll tell you why. They are God sports commentators because a good sports commentator doesn't just tell you what happens, they tell you the significance of what has just happened. So like you could say, okay, there, I could commentate very, very accurately and say there, there's a man in improbably tight shorts who has got a, you know, no sleeves on, who has just thrown a sort of large brown egg in the air and booted it and it went between a couple of sticks and lots of people went crazy because of this. This is very accurate. And then all of a sudden I heard a buzz. That's very accurate, Right. But that's very different to what a commentator does, where he would say that with one kick, this man erased a century of pain for an entire community as he secured the 20, whatever it was, AFL premiership for them. Vindication for the coach whose tactics were widely questioned. They turned victory into a legend and a loss. The, 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 the commentators just do this magical thing where they turn victory into legend, loss into tragedy. They don't just describe events. They tell you the why of those events. They tell you the meaning of those events, the significance of it for a community. And Jeremiah looks at life in Israel and he wants to tell you what's going on here, not just the actions. Okay, so it just happened to be that this person went to this temple and they worshipped this God. Who cares? He says, no, when you see that, you have to see adultery. That's what's there. The Israelites are worshipping different gods and Jeremiah says, you are an unfaithful spouse. You've got to get the drama. Now, second thing, I actually think they are a lot like lawyers. Lawyers, right? Because they also don't just tell you the story and the, the significance in the narrative, but they also describe current events in the context of of the law, of the covenants. This is what Gail was saying. She's actually, they actually don't just sort of make... So I don't know if anyone... Did anyone here say when they thought of prophets, oh, predicts the future? They've got a prophecy about something happening in the future. That's, that's at least part of what comes into my mind. But here, actually, the, the, one of the things that the prophets mostly do is actually look back and then they take the prophecy, they, sorry, they take the, um, the covenants, the promises, the treaties between God and humanity and say, right, okay, here's what you guys said you'd do. Now, here's what I see you doing. See the problem? That, that's kind of their job, right? These are, these are lawyers coming with cease and desist letters quoting legislation. <coughs> 
citing the correct relevant local or international law. So they're saying, stop breaking the law, guys, quite often. In fact, a lot of the prophets' predictions that we see as predictions in the text are actually, if we go back and read Deuteronomy or if we go back and read Exodus, they're actually just reading out the penalties clause. When you do this, this is what will happen. They don't need to be that clairvoyant in order to be able to do that. Their covenant lawyers presenting God's case. Now, the prophets pop up in this particular section of the biblical story, right? Uh, where are we? Where's my slide with the... Oh, man. One, one day I'll get it right, I swear. One day I will get it right. Uh, there's a, in the biblical story, there's a, um, a timeline that we've had, and, and the prophets pop up, strangely, in this moment just after the priests and the kings are brought into the, into the history. That's where, they, that's where they inhabit. That's where, they, where those sort of things happen for them. It's not until then. And it's interesting, that why? Why priests and kings equals prophets? Well, it's because the coming of those institutions of power make prophets necessary. Do you remember Deuteronomy 17? We talked about how the kings and the priests were supposed to be under God's word the same way, the same way as their fellow Israelites are, Right? So you're supposed to, the king's supposed to write a copy of the law and read it all the days of his life. And he was supposed to be under it just as his brother. So he wouldn't raise his heart up above his fellow Israelites. And the same with the priests. So sure, the prophets at some point would address the whole nation. But actually a massive percentage of what they spoke, they either spoke directly to the kings and the priests or the other ruling class figures. And it was their job to apply the word of God to them so that they would not abuse their power. This is a prophet's role. They're whistleblowers. They spoke truth to power. They told kings, priests, and rulers that they couldn't just do with their power whatever they saw to be fit. And so if you stop and think about that, it makes sense that actually, if you were going to find a place in Scripture where God most powerfully speaks out against systemic injustice most powerfully cares about the plight of the lowly and the powerless, uh, the place where, if you, some people might take this too far, but the place where the, the, the sort of liberation theology finds all of its purple passages uh, about liberating those in the lower, lower sort of uh, more humble and difficult places, well, they're from the prophets here, where God addresses those who do have power. Not, God's not against each individual within the nation. God cares for the abused within Israel. And he won't treat them in the same way as he will treat those who are abusing them. And yet at the same time, prophets do talk to the whole nation because as the king goes, well, as the leadership goes, the nation generally follows with many suffering in the process. So what's the story that Jeremiah tells? What story do the prophets tell generally? Uh, it is. It's this story of adultery. We'll have a little look at uh, Jeremiah 2, 5 and 6. Uh, we've got three, five, and six. Uh, we should have two, five, and six there. And we've got three. Here we go. Here we go. They ask, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but actually you're doing all the evil that you possibly can. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? Josiah is actually one of the good kings. I don't know if you re remember <laughs> and yet, even under his reign, she has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. High hill, spreading tree. Finding their, finding their own garden. 
they're on Eden again. But instead, this time, instead of uh, going to the one place where God said, no, 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 I've got a place for you to be, they didn't seek him. They sought others. They went elsewhere. They sought other gods, whichever one happened to take their fancy. It gets graphic. Um, I don't really want to go too graphic. I mean, in fact, this, this passage here is actually one of the least graphic of this type. There's parts of the Bible here that I, I'm not going to tell you go look for it because you, you won't believe that it's even in the, in the Bible. And so like a sports commentator making sure you don't miss the significance, he says, Jeremiah says, you, don't, you, just, you just don't do this. You don't do this. Historically, this God is the one who rescued you out of Egypt and you're treating him like you're treating him. Do you understand what you're doing? Now, a few years later, God speaks again to, uh, through uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, he, uh, he says to, through Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and you've not followed my decrees or kept my laws. In fact, you haven't even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself, I'm against you. Jerusalem, I'm going to inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. This is going to be a public thing. Because otherwise, if I don't do this publicly, everyone's going to think that it's on me. That's not on me, it's on you. I'm going to make sure everyone knows this. Honor is going to be established here. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I've never done before and I will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, well, I'm just not going to read the rest of the bits of it out. You go back, read it if you can. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you've defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. This being an act of humiliation, of shame. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Now, so much of this is word for word from Deuteronomy and Exodus. Ezekiel is in covenant lawyer mode. He's reading out the list of charges, so there can be no doubt why this great tragedy is happening. You have broken my laws. In fact, you've even broken the pagans' laws. Verse 8, I'm against you. I don't know, did you, did you flinch at that? That's a scary thing that the living God would say to you, I'm against you. Verse 11, I'll leave you. I'm going I'm I'm to leave you. God pronounces sentence these people are going to experience covenant curse. And so as, as, as they're hearing, I, I can imagine as, as um, Ezekiel comes in and says, I need an appointment with the king, the king sits down with him. Ezekiel presents him with the letter and the, and the, and the notice of motion. And, and, and then the, this is how it's going to happen. And here's you have many days to respond. That, that he would sound like the slick lawyer, the, the, the no-holds-barred lawyer of an angry spouse taking their ex to the cleaners, in the divorce proceedings. Using the law to point out exactly who was at fault, citing chapter and verse. Now, because these two that we now sort of, you start to feel how dire the relationship is between these two. Um, remember, these are the two we have been hoping would get together this whole movie. Remember, like they're the two that at the start of the movie, like, oh, they're so beautiful. They're so perfect for each other. That would just be magical if they were together. And now they're not the fresh young, they're not at the fresh young thing age or stage anymore. Things are sagging. Faults are showing. Character flaws are becoming apparent. And it feels so yuck. You just want both of them to get out of there. 
You know when you've seen relationships so toxic, you just feel like both of them need to get out of there? And why is God even doing these things? Like what's motivating it? What's the heart behind it? Well, there's actually a jealousy. Down in verse 13, he says, I am jealous for you. This is a messy, messy breakup. Uh, if you wanted to sort of get a whole book that kind of picks up on this, the, the book of Hosea is about the messy relationship. In fact, there's an enacted part of it where Hosea the prophet is told by God, marry a woman who's going to cheat on you. And don't pretend you've got to love her. You're going to make your heart vulnerable to this because someone's got to understand what this is really like for me as your God. She'll cheat on you many times with many men. And once you've experienced that, then you'll be fit to be a prophet to go to my people and tell them what it's like to have been your God. All right, that's the kind of message you got. And you're going to talk to the kings. How do you reckon a prophet's first meeting would generally go? First sermon. People with power don't like to be told things like this. I don't know if you noticed. What do you reckon the average career length for a prophet would be? This is, there's, there's no OH&S. You don't get, you know, there's no, there's no legal recourse if someone mistreats you in this job. The prophets were ignored, persecuted, opposed, ridiculed, and often killed. In fact, uh, not that I'm spoiling the story, but, Jesus put, uh, but the Apostle Stephen puts Jesus just as the last in a long line. Just for a moment, brothers and sisters, every, I just want to encourage you, every time you speak well of Christ and you suffer for it, know that you, you follow in the footsteps of other messengers, other messengers from God, because that's what you are at that moment. And they will be waiting for you in heaven to receive you into their number of those who spoke the truth and hurt because of it. You can read more about it in Revelation. Now, there's a really funny thing because it's almost like after a while of this and you, and you get newspaper after newspaper, doom and gloom, and you think, yeah, okay, that sounds like a newspaper. Um, and yet, eventually, God moves on to something else. You've got this, this um, oh, sorry, here we go. You've got the history here of, this is when the prophets rock up, when you've got the, um, from here onwards, this whole period when you've got priests and kings. And we're at this dark point where these guys are completely gone, these guys are off in no man's land. They're a long way away from home. No reason to think that they'll ever come home. And all of a sudden, from that shade, you get the most ridiculous, blinding light of promises from God. From the same prophets. Incredible stuff. Uh, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16. Um, oh, sorry, here, this, this is just the... Um, the that, that, that remember we talked about the going up on the mountains, these high places to go to God, and yet God had given that one place, special place they were supposed to go, and yet they were on the high places everywhere, sacrificing to whomever, however, without any regard for how God asked that to be. And yet, despite it being at such a nadir, such, such a, a low point, you, you get these incredible things. Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16 
For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I'm going to rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out from the nations. I'm going to gather them from the countries. I'm going to bring them into their own land. I'll pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land. They'll feed on a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel and I myself will tend my sheep and I'll have them lie down declares the sovereign Lord I'll search for the lost ones bring back the strays I'll bind up the injured I'll strengthen the weak but the sleek and the strong I will destroy I will shepherd the flock with justice and you you just think hold on if you could say that why, why, why this no, I will not tolerate this any further other language and, and why the situation that we're now in? Is it, just, it just seems a bit schizophrenic. It's like, it, like, it doesn't, like they can't both, how do they both be true? Uh, next bit, Ezekiel 36. But you, this is, this is so good because we've had God speaking to the people. Hear the tenderness here as he takes a moment to speak to the land. You mountains of Israel will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home they're not, they're not the high places of pagan revelry anymore they're now they're in those very places now god's going to bless them i'm concerned for you i'll look on you with favor you will be plowed and sown i'll cause many people to live on you yes all of israel the towns will be inhabited the ruins will be rebuilt i'll increase the number of people and animals living on you they'll be fruitful and become numerous i'll settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper even more than before and then you will know that i am yahweh this beautiful moment of speaking to the land tenderly. I'll cause my people Israel to live on you. They'll possess you. You will be their inheritance and you will never again deprive them of their children. And then, then, then we go e- even further. Ezekiel comes to this moment. Um, do, you, do you remember that there's a, uh, some of you will be familiar with this story. There's this moment where God grabs Ezekiel and brings him to this valley in this vision a valley where there's just dry bones. And the symbolism was obviously right. This is, what, this is what's left of my people. And he says to, to Ezekiel, can, 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 can these bones live again? And Ezekiel quite wisely says, uh, you know that God, I'll leave that to you. Um, very good answer. And yet at the same time, how did God bring life in the garden? He took a rib, he took a piece of bone, a bit of the dust, from it, he formed woman and breathed the breath of life in. And here he does exactly the same thing. I will put my spirit, literally I'll put my ruach, my breath, same word, in you and you will live. And you will, you will settle, I'll settle you in your own land, back in the garden again, back in the place. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken the same way I spoke into existence everything in the garden. And that I have done it, declares Yahweh. And then you get to Isaiah. It's not just Ezekiel. You get to Isaiah and you get this. It's like not just garden. It's elevated past garden. It's like Solomonic in its majesty. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. And the kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. They'll see you and think you're so awesome that they'll come into you. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. 
Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To the rich, uh, to you, the riches of the nations will come. You, you're picking up, and you, you hear the hear the words of. Um, uh, of two kings and Solomon here, don't you? Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba, like the queen, will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of Yahweh. And you're just trying to work out, God, are you genuinely schizophrenic? What, what, how can this both be? It doesn't make sense because you speak, speak in one moment saying, I just will not tolerate this anymore. It's not okay. I want you to understand how relationally problematic what has happened is and the relationship is busted. And yet says this, which is it, destruction or glory? Now, understand that, that these two sets of promises, these divergent paths of, of, um, uh, of prophecy, they're spoken into a future, that looks, into a present that looks like this one. It looks like there is no future at this point. If you looked around when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, there's no hint that there will be something like this. So why the ridiculous positivity? It seems off until the strangest thing happens. Now, for what reason this happens, we don't know. But in the first verse of Ezra, we hear it read, and in fact, we actually have the, we have the cylinder that they would have rolled out onto the clay to make this message. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. You can go to uh, one of the museums in Europe. can't remember which one. Is it London? Um, and, and see the Cyrus Cylinder that says exactly this. King Cyrus decrees that the Jews are permitted to return to the land. Ooh. Now, we're going to get to that next week. But for now, we're going to, we're going to hear, try and hear God speak to us in what he has said about his people and how they've treated him within the context of his story. There's just three things. The first thing is here is that God is jealous. Do your word search for it. Pick out how, how big a thing it is in Ezekiel. When things happen in personal relationships, they have personal consequences. I hope you can see the personal in these chapters. Like, there's nothing transactional here. God doesn't pretend he's fine with being treated this way by people that he's got a history with. See, God doesn't speak to the nations like this. Have you noticed that? It's different. It's because I rescued you out of Egypt. It's because I gave birth to you. It's because when you were a little baby, I wiped your butt and I took care of you and I made everything good for you and I raised you and I, and, and, and I, and I taught you what was right and wrong. I gave you the law. I didn't leave you without that training. And then I gave you good leaders. And then, and then I gave you these reminders, these prophets to come back who were to keep your powerful people in check, but also just to remind you what's true. And I, I did everything for you. And it's, it's only when that's been the case in our history that he'll speak to you like this, that this level of unfaithfulness that this I'm going to go elsewhere for good things is described as adultery because you've got history with me says God to Israel I've tried so many times I've tried so many things I've given them everything that you could possibly want but the way I've treated you so far deserves more than this and remember he's remember it's, it's not just history because it's not like God's just in an unofficial friends, friendship relationship with Israel, like, you know, friends in a group and they started to kind of just go to the movies together on their own, but they're not official or anything like that. No, God committed himself publicly, multiple times, different ways. And he is jealous because publicly he has said, these are my people. I put my name on them. My reputation rises and falls with them. 
And everyone knows this. And so when they glance elsewhere, it is not okay. When they look to other gods. So this moment is the moment in the story where God's guts and his frustration and his long-term hanging in there with Israel comes out. God is jealous. He does not want to see his girl with another man. It's twisting him up. Fooling around with other gods who don't have her best in mind. Who can't do the things for her that he can. Who aren't gods at all, according to Ezekiel. See, the thing is, Israel's forgotten that history, that story. That God has been good to her, not as a religious sentiment. Oh, God is good all of the time. No, they walked through a sea to get away from whips. Things happened, actual history. And they've forgotten that. That's what he's been for them. And that that means there's a relationship there to attend to. But also, I think they've forgotten something else as well. They've forgotten that he's the main character of this story. You see, when you think you're the main character, that your story's about you, well, you ask the question then, well, what's God doing for me? How's, how's this spiritual walk helping me? Am I growing as a person? Is this, is this? And it doesn't make sense to do anything that he asks you to do. That's hard. Because it's, well, it's about me, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go through life and see how I can you know, maximize my potential and stuff. And I'd end up treating God as an as a means to an ends rather than an ends in and of himself because it's about him. Uh, rather than luxuriating in being with him, in, in serving him, in, in, in making his desires happen. As that, is, as that was the end in itself. Not so that, so that I can think of myself as having been a good person, but, but because that is what matters. That is the beauty. That's the glory. That's the good. Because he is good and to, to serve him to his stuff. That's it. That's what matters. However it works out, who cares? I got to, I got to, I got to serve him. That's my end game and they've forgotten this that he's the main character of the story in the beginning God and so I, 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 this kicks me hard this, this, this week and so to, to those of you who brothers and sisters who also like me call Jesus your Lord who've got some history with God would God be jealous of the time that your mirror receives from you would he be jealous of the time that... Oh, I'm just about certain that God is jealous over the time that my screens receive from me. Is God jealous over your anxious moments? The ones you don't want to take to him, because he would want to be with me when I'm anxious, and he is desperate to be with you in them. The ones that you take alcohol or food or, 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 or trashy Netflix shows or whatever to, but he would be just so overjoyed if you would choose him to soothe your heart. Him to be with, him to share it with. God is jealous even for those moments when you sin. They're the moments he wants to walk you through, to have been with you, to be in communion with you over. Have you ever thought that God is jealous for your attention in, in your moments of temptation when you don't want him, you want something bad? He wants you then. Now look, God is God, is God right? So he's perfect in love, in joy, in peace for all eternity. Father, Son, Spirit, um, you, you, the, 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 their relationship's impregnable. You can't hurt him or make him less than he is. He, he's not needy. It's not, that, it's not that 
he needs you to be okay like a lapdog. He's there. He's God. Yet somehow, this being who is God, his love for you is such that God is jealous for you. For your attention, for your obedience, as Exodus puts it, for your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. There is not an atom of your anatomy, there is not a speck of your soul that God doesn't say, that Jesus doesn't say, hey, that's meant for me, to be with me and for me. The thing is, God is jealous. And how we treat him as personal Christians who have a history with him. The second thing I think is pretty obvious out of this one is that it's hard to receive this rebuke. Pardon me, this rebuke. For me, it's because it, it, it offends that internal part of me, which is desperate. And I say for me, desperate to be able to believe that how I'm doing things right now is kind of okay. That I, don't, I, I want that. I want to be able to feel okay about myself and how I have been. And so it's hard to hear this. I suspect part of you is rebelling against thinking that any of this might have something to say to you. I didn't like that idea very much. I didn't like, it, the, I didn't like very much the idea of admitting it in front of a whole bunch of people. Oh, don't tell me, but what did you say when Chris asked you the question, what can't you do without? Phone, being liked, Wi-Fi, electricity, I don't know. Well, what thing do you most hope that I won't say, because that's yours? What could God ask you to give up that you're not sure you'd be willing to? You just come to, just come to become normal. And if you ever did go without it for a little while, it starts to feel pretty awkward pretty quick. Can I encourage you fast from that thing as a matter of urgency? And go to God, spend some time with God in that space that you've just created. Open your mind, open your heart, open your spirit. Ask God's spirit to change your heart. Just exist there. Go for a journey with God in that space that you create through that fasting. Because, I mean, what would it, what would, what would our, how different would our lives look if we just stopped, took everything out of the diary and said, okay, I want my number one purpose to be enjoying Jesus and living to serve him in response. If I threw away everything and started again with that mentality. It's so hard, though. So many things feel desperate. But are they? Last one. What's your history with God? See, this is the thing. What's, what's he done for you? Like the thing about um, John Jansen when I would talk to him um, was that he had a very clear testimony. He knew his own story, right? The first thing that happened when he took me out for lunch, like within a couple of weeks of getting down here, uh, he took me out to lunch and then he sat me down and he's like, right, this is who I am. And he went through his story. There were things in there that weren't pretty. And instead of trying to impress the young preacher that he would be a wise older figure that would be useful to, to, to look up to and get wisdom from, which he was, he, con- he confessed his sins. But what that meant was that he also knew his own story. He could tell me what, what it was about Jesus that mattered to him because he could see the change. He journeyed with Jesus. He'd been, he'd been investing it. He'd been, he'd been walking with it. I, I guess I'm just... You know how... Um, uh, Peter encourages us to, to always have, a, um, have ready a, a reason for the hope that you have in your heart. 
and I most of the time think, oh, yeah, I need a good apologetic answer, a good way to share the gospel that makes sense in the broader world. But just in preparing this, I wonder if, rather than having a good answer like that, I wonder if what he was really thinking was something more like um, what, what Polycarp said just before he was martyred in the first century. So this is a guy who sort of born within living memory of Jesus, sorry, lived within living memory of Jesus. And, and when they threatened to kill him, when the Romans said, we are going to kill you if you don't reject Christ, he, he, he's recorded to have said, for 86 years I've served him and he's done me no wrong. How could I betray my Lord and my Saviour. Like, I wonder if that's the kind of thing that he means. People say, well, but I've walked with the guy. He's forgiven me. He's been with me in my hard times. And, and, and as I remember hear, hearing that, I think, I want to be able to say that. I want my walk with him to be, with God to be that real, to have been that connected, to have been that with. You see, I think we've got to have our story with God. You've got to know your own story. The true one, the real one, not, it's nice to have a, it'd be nice to have a, you know, be my age and have an 80-something-year-old man sort of wisdom and background and be able to look back on what God was doing in that insight. But, but, but we, we're not going to have that. We're all just going to have the story that we've got, right? But stop and reflect on it. Think about it. Talk about it with, with, with people. Work out what is your story because that's your history. That's, that, your history with God is what makes it not okay when we are adulterous with him and go to other things other than him to cope. It's that history that makes it personal between you and God, the specific actual stuff that's happened to you. I don't know your story with God. Now, and if you don't know your story with God, that's not because it's a weird exercise that kooky people do. It's because you haven't spent enough time in the discipline of Christian meditation and Christian fellowship for that story to have emerged just yet. That's okay. That's and in those contexts, that's where these, these stories begin to emerge. But know, know it. Come to know your personal story so that you've got history with God to go back on and say, that's why I can't deny him. That's why when my friends are at work saying he's a, he's a, he's a jerk, I've got to actually say something different because I've done business with him. I know what he's done for me. And that's the fuel. That's what's going to give us a reason to stick with Jesus when times really are very hard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it seems crazy that you would be jealous of time with me. Especially given what I do with it, what I think. And yet, God, to, to, to deny that is just going to stop me from enjoying and having the time with you that, that you so want and also that you are owed by me. And also, of course, that will be the thing that blesses me the most. And Lord, that's true for all of us. Father, help us to receive this rebuke, to remember the history we've got with you, what you've done for us in Jesus, and also just in, in our walk so far, the ways you've interacted with us, the constancy with which you have been there, the people you've put in our path, the gospel that you have preached to us, and the reminder even tonight that you are jealous for our moments, for our hearts. And Father, what we have done has broken and busted the relationship so badly. It's, it's the, the kind of mess where people can't talk to each other face to face. They send in lawyers, where you send in prophets to negotiate on your behalf because you can't even talk anymore to these people. They've got to be half a world apart from you. Father, that is the kind of mess that we're talking about. 
And so we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We look forward to seeing the, the ways that your love is going to express itself in moments as dark and as mucky and yuck as that as we go through the story in the next few weeks. But Father, just, just now, help us not to forget your goodness to us in the past and help us not to forget the story that we have with you, that you are the main character in it so that we would worship you and that that's what our lives would be about. Amen.